Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and I'm here today talking with Robert Waples, who is a research fellow at the Independent Institute. He's co-editor and managing editor for the Independent Review, professor of economics at Wake Forest University, director and book review editor for EH.net, and a member of the board of advisors for the Center on Cultural and Civil Society at the Independent Institute. He received his PhD in economics from the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the editor of a book, Pope Francis and the Caring Society. Robert, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me on. I hate to say it this to start off this way, but there's going to be a lot of our listeners who wonder why we why they should still tune in for a, a conversation about what the Pope thinks. Um, and so I'm going to kind of ask you to to give us an idea from a, just a broader Christian perspective. Why does anybody care what the Pope thinks, and why is it important for us to actually wrestle with this, uh, you know, from an economic standpoint? Because you have a book out that you've edited called Pope Francis and the Caring Society, and you know, it Pope Francis has generated a lot of interest broadly, uh, not just in the Catholic world. Uh, but what is this book about, and why why should somebody who isn't directly a Catholic care about what the Pope has to say, or what you have to say with with respect to what the Pope says? Uh, yes, I recognize the Pope has run into some trouble recently, especially with the handling of the Cardinal McCarrick situation and and those other things. Uh, but I think the the Pope still uh, speaks, you know, from his position sitting on on the the, the chair of Peter, uh, two and four over a billion Catholics, and then also two billions of other people around the the world. And so when he does say something, uh, a lot of people pay attention, especially I think when it comes to uh, economic issues. He's not an economist, but. That encyclical that he had a few years ago, Laudato Si, on the care of our common home, kind of the environmental encyclical, got an immense amount of attention uh, as the Pope weighing in on not just environmental issues but economic issues from his position standing on top of 2,000 years of Catholic social teaching and Christian social teaching. So what he has to say appeals to a lot of people because it He's speaking to more than just his people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's of interest to all of us because we're we're all involved in the economy. Well, that's that is exactly correct. I've always had this impression that when Pope Francis came along, the left really kind of tuned into what he was saying uh, because he had a lot to say that they agreed with. Is that is was that true in the past, or is this is he kind of a new pope in that in that regard? I, I think you are exactly right that uh, the left definitely perked up its ears in this case. Our previous popes, uh, you know, within within our memory, uh, definitely spoke from a more, well, I'll describe it this way. Catholic social teaching is kind of a, a, a broad river, if you will, and you can mm-hmm. tack over to one bank of the river or the other bank of the river. And on one side, 
it's clearly uh, much more of an understanding and appreciation of what a unfettered market can deliver. And you especially saw that with John Paul II. And now Francis kind of tacks over to the other side. Uh, and there's been a, you know, a, a tradition within the church that leans more, not I would say outright socialism, but more toward a, a larger role of the state and the economy. So what is the caring society? Is is there a kind of a working definition that, that, that has come up that you can explain for us? Because that's really uh, the, the topic we want to yeah, talk about because exactly we all right. want to live in a good society. We, you know, uh, we're all Christians and we would like to uh, lead the kind of lives that God wants us to, right? So what? why did God put us here? Let me quote actually from the first paragraph of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which I think is just wonderful and poetic and gets to the point. It says, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and every place God draws close to man, he calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. He calls together all men scattered and divided by sin into the unity of his family. And so that's what it's about. How can we act like we're a family that God put us here to be part of, right? The caring society is that family. Yeah, well, no wonder it sounds like socialism when people, when economists listen to the Pope say stuff like this. I mean, I can't imagine anybody saying, well, that sounds like a great idea. Why not? Let's do that. Well, going back to Jesus, right? The, the teaching is that all men are brothers. Yeah. And to treat your, you know, love your neighbor as your brother. And so the question is, how do we love our neighbors as our brothers? Mm. They're not our brothers. Uh, we can't treat every neighbor we bump into as if they were, you know, our kin. That's not going to happen. Uh, but how do we go to, you know, the, the greatest degree of treating complete strangers, especially people that don't have the advantages we do, uh, you know, and treating them with the love and respect that we're supposed to treat them with. That's the question. And so there is one side that is kind of socialist, and it says, you know, uh, just have this state come along and forcibly take resources from people who have, quote unquote, too much, and give that to people who, that looks, in our opinion, like they don't have enough, okay? There's that coercive way of getting about it. But do you know very many families that act so coercively and function well? Not really. The other way of doing it, then, is to set up institutions to allow people to cooperate with each other. And that's really what the authors, the contributors to our book, Pope Francis and the Caring Society, uh, and I think other libertarian Christians uh, have more in mind, that we can set up institutions that allow us to cooperate with each other. And in that cooperation, we all gain. And that's how we really treat each other as brothers and sisters, right? Yeah. It's been my observation over the last few years in engaging a little bit more with people on the left and a little bit less with people on the right, because I kind of came from the right and became a more I became a libertarian, kind of emerging out of the right, and thankfully, the you know where I emerged from, they did value individual freedom, and I just kind of applied that consistently. But it does seem that there is this—I don't know what might explain it—but it seems like there's this like pull toward this 
brotherly love mentality about society and that there's this there's this uh, empty hole uh, maybe maybe would be one way to put it that we live in a society where we don't feel cared for mm. uh, we, because the market does so well at providing. Um, mm. I think it was mm-hmm. jo- Jonah, Ger- Jonah Goldberg uh, said in his book, it said that capitalism has one fatal flaw. It doesn't feel like it provides all the goods. Like mm-hmm. it, it, because, you know, on the surface, it does seem it's more about competition and instead of mm-hmm. solving mm-hmm. problems and, 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 you know, solving needs. I mean, if any, anything, you and I both know that capitalism has solved an yeah, immense yeah. number of needs over the past 200 years. Yeah, yeah. So the irony there, I guess, is that like who needs capitalism the most? It's the poorest of the poor that do. Oh, yeah. That's and all, those yeah. of us in wealthy countries like this, I mean, we're already sitting so pretty and we already have enough or too much junk already, right? And, you know, do, do, do we really need uh, like the additional gains that, that are going to come along when we have mm-hmm. you know, the market you know, mature as it does. Yeah. The poor really need this far more than, than the rich do. And so I can see that kind of thing. All of our, you know, our material needs are taken care of so well. I was thinking about this when I was eating breakfast, you know, and I got my strawberries out and it's like one of them was a little squishy and I was like, oh man, that stinks. And then I thought to myself, dude, you know, you don't even have to go out and shoot anything or hunt and gather or pick or whatever. You just like take your box of Cheerios down and your milk out of the refrigerator and pour it and expect yeah. everything to be right. And it is right there. Yeah. How spoiled are you? Right. You know? Yeah. Well, you're right. Like growing your own food is a luxury. Yeah. And so I was thinking, you know, that like all of my material needs are met so well by those anonymous strangers in the market. But I have deeper needs as well. That just could not ever be met by people in the market. They're the need to be loved and to be cared for. And that's not going to be supplied to me by some strangers that I you know, interact with in the market. It's got to be people that are in my own family, you know, close to me, colleagues and friends and that kind of stuff. And, you know, don't expect everything out of the market is, is the key here. It's delivered to us so well all this other stuff that what we're hungering for, in addition, you know, these friendships, these relationships, God can't be delivered to us by the market, you know? Yeah. Well, and somehow people think that they can be delivered through through state coercion. Yeah. 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 That's a that's unfortunate as well. Yeah. I like your point about material needs, like, you know, even just a <laughs> less than ideal strawberry is is cause yeah. for us to like. It was squishy. <laughs> it was kind of gross. You know, it's like. Uh. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it. Yeah, it's so amazing to me the kind of world that we live in. I mean, I was just traveling overseas and I was able to stay connected at literally the ends of the earth with my family, with with members of my family who were not traveling with me, and it was just it was just insane. And I'm just like, man, the world we live in is so connected. It's so small. It allows so much, and we we somehow, you know, don't don't feel grateful about it. You know. You and I aren't excessively wealthy the way somebody like a Jeff Bezos is or the people that Bernie Sanders goes after. And so the Pope's kind of attention to the problem is that, you know, excessive consumption and the wealthy makes us lazy and selfish. Get, brings to us, brings to our world, like, okay, fine. It, I've heard leftists say this, like hardcore leftists be like, oh, well, yeah, markets are good at delivering goods, but there's more to just delivering the goods. And somebody like the Pope would say, it also brings in some uh, unvirtuous habits and practices uh, in and of itself. Yeah, and so I think the, the Pope definitely agrees with that argument. 
And I think conservatives or libertarians shouldn't dismiss at least part of that argument too quickly. So the Pope puts it this way in Laudato Si. He says, the constant flood of new consumer goods can baffle the heart and prevent us from cherishing each thing and each moment. It's a return to the capacity to be happy with only a little, which allows us to stop and appreciate the small things. So even middle-class Americans, I think, are inundated by this constant flood of new consumer goods, and they think that their salvation is in it sometimes. You know, we act mm-hmm. kind of like it is. And the Pope is asking, you know, people all across the line to, you know, pay attention to that. We, we expect, like, all these little lesser lights of the world, my new iPhone, my new my, – the vacation I'm going on, uh, my house that I moved into that's bigger than the old one. We expect those things to fulfill our deepest needs and wants. And they fill important needs and wants, but not our deepest ones, which is for God. And there's no way they could. And if we look at those lesser lights, they can distract us from paying attention to like, the true light. And so – there's another paper that I've written in which I look at the percentage of people in different countries that say that you know religion is important or questions related to that you know God important in my life and there is just this strong negative correlation you know the richer the country is the fewer and fewer people say that religion or God is very important in their life and that that is shocking. Right. That that's that's a bad trend. It's saying that, you know, we're paying attention to these things and think that that's what matters. And we don't need to worry about or shouldn't and don't even think about God anymore. You know, there's a line in Proverbs and it says something I think I can roughly paraphrase it. it says, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. Us being poor, I steal and profane the name of my God, or less being rich, less being full, I deny thee and I say, who is the Lord? And I think a lot of us, even not wealthy Jeff Bezos, you know, regular people in the United States are at that stage now where we're like full. We're full of material stuff. Our bellies are full. We're not hungry. We're just okay. And then we think that's all. And we, we stop caring about things that are even more important than that. And that's a warning that the that Pope Francis puts out, and I think we should all take to heart. Do you think there's a there's an argument to be made for you know, every, a lot of people uh, kind of blame millennials and the up and coming young people, people in their twenties, uh, for a lot of ills in this world mm-hmm. and, and stuff. And I I look at a lot of people born you know a decade or so after I was born as kind of inheriting a, the kind of world where things are very easily taken for granted. You know, you and I. Would, would both be able to look back and say, well, we remember a time before the internet uh, and things like that. And yeah. and so there's this like assumption that the world is like provi- you know, basic provisions are typical. There's so much, there, there's a lot of wealth. I should just say it that way. Uh-huh. Forget the distribution uh, question there for a second, but there's yeah. a lot of wealth in the world. And there's a lot of things out there that can be distributed. I wonder if because of that, because there is so much out there, whether or not people have time to even say, well, there are deeper needs. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to, to put it. And I think the sad thing is that as we get wealthier and wealthier over time, it, this, the, the, 
the memory of actual mm-hmm. privation is getting further and further into the past. And we feel deprived when we don't have, you know, Cell coverage. something that's just not <laughs> that basic to our living, right? Exactly. Have you ever seen yeah. Weird Al? He's got this uh, video. Uh, what's it called? First World Problems. I have not seen that one, no. And so it's, I forget the exact line, but it's like, my house is so, my kitchen is so big that I can't get Wi-Fi in one corner. I forget the exact line, right? But these are the problems we run into today, right? We, I can't get Wi-Fi in all parts of my house because my house is so big, okay? If that's what you feel like being deprived, you know, uh, you're just showing how spoiled yeah. You really are. And we're like that. We're like that more and more. We see it unfold over generations, but I also think it happens to us within any age cohort as well. And so I'm not, not going to be an old man on my, out in my front yard waving my wake rake at those, those darn teenagers, <laughs> those whippersnappers to get off my property or whatever, because um, I think we're all infected with this. And it's so easy to get infected with it. Uh, because that stuff's right there. Yeah, yeah. And everybody else thinks it's cool, and I guess it's cool a little bit. And so, you, you know, you just kind of focus on that rather than what is so much more fundamentally important. Imagine somebody, like, just unplugging and not watching, like, any TV or Internet or anything like that. It's almost like, oh, that would be the, the worst punishments you could mete out to somebody, <laughs> right? So. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, Tom on Parks and Recreation. Like he just he had no ability to do anything, uh, even tend to a splinter, without looking something up on WebMD. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. I looked it up. It's uh, my house is so big I can't get Wi-Fi in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, <there you laughs> I, I had go. to I had to buy something I didn't even need just so I could qualify for free shipping on Amazon. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I that mean, Weird yeah. Al is a prophet, you know. He, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, that also reminds me of a Louis C.K. bit where he's talking about people complaining about flying. He's like, you're in a chair in the sky, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I've seen that one. You know? <laughs> when people went from one coast to another 100 years ago, they were a completely different group <laughs> yeah. by the time they got there. Yeah, no, there's a lot to be there's a lot to be thankful for. I mean, going back to what you said earlier about, you know, we shouldn't dismiss these kind of critiques lightly. Why? Why is that? Like. I, I often feel the same way. Like I don't want to just throw out what every leftist tells me is bad with capitalism with mm-hmm. with just like, oh, well, I'm just not going to listen to you because, hey, we have this really good world. Because if we do spend five minutes thinking about the world that we live in, we can still have appreciation for the immense needs that are taken yeah. care of through the market and through and through no other option but the market because we know what works mm-hmm. and we know what's moral and non-coercive and all of that. Uh, yet at the same time have this like, okay, now now what do we do to improve the world in ways that we can mm-hmm. make a difference? And, you know, what are some things that you think most, you know, conservatives or libertarians should take a little bit more to heart that the left has to say? Or I don't know, I don't want to also say that it's like, it's not always on the left. I mean, these are, this is just a, a cer- certain stream of social teaching that we're talking about here. I have a talk I give, and it's basically... You know, what do economists say is great about the market? What does, you know, Pope Francis say, hey, this isn't so great? What do economists say back? Kind of a whole dialogue between the two. And I kind of begin by like listing the strengths of economists and then thinking what the strengths of the, the capitalist 
market economy, and then which economists are just so obvious to them, right? And then what would somebody who's more skeptical of the market say in response? So uh, let me kind of read through some of this, right? So economists would say capitalism solves like the, the three big problems, the, the knowledge problem, the incentive problem, the learning problem. The knowledge problem of, you know, how do I use my resources? My incentive problem of how do I get people, you know, not to waste their resources, have the incentive to actually use them wisely. And how do we get to learn to use these better and better? And the market solves it so well by making it in your self-interest to do all of that. And because it solves it so well, accelerating technological improvements, it really, the market has almost wiped out absolute poverty around the globe at this point. The rich get richer and the poor get richer. And the market achieves that without any coercion. It diffuses power, right? And it unleashes creativity. But I think what a skeptic of the market would come back and say is that, well, yeah, but the market incentivizes people to pay attention to cost, to pay attention to private costs, ignoring social costs, spillover costs that you can push off onto other people with pollution, for example, being the classic case. Um, markets can produce so much, have produced so much, that those external damages rise as output rises. Think about fishing. You know, it used to be we'd go out there, guys would risk their lives to catch a few fish, and now we're so good at it, we basically sucked all the fish out of the ocean. Mm. We're getting to that point, right, with the overfishing. And the market has solved these problems so well that, you know, maybe we're at a point where just we can't sustain what it's what it's doing and using up resources that we'll need in the future, say these skeptics of the market. Uh, the market has gotten to the point where people just have too much for their own good, kind of what we were talking about before. The market generates high levels of inequality. The market encourages, it feeds on, it lives on envy, right? Boy, every car commercial you've ever seen, <laughs> and envy happens to be one of the cardinal sins if you remember yeah, right. where you live. Right? And then the market lures people into focusing on those crass materialist things that we've been talking about, pandering to our worst nature, like sex cells, right? And distracting us from what's really important, you know, God. And the market, you know, it tends to go overboard on individualism and sometimes just ignore that we are, as I was saying earlier, really brothers of, of one another. Uh, the market puts a price tag on everything, right? Uh, these critics say that the, the, the poor get exploited in the in the system, that the market's plagued by booms and busts, and there's way too much cronyism, right? And so that's and then the economists come back in the in the dialogue that I have, and they say, well, you've gone overboard, and so let's see some of the problems you talked about, some solutions to those problems, and then you know kind of helpfully convince you that some of those things you see as problems are overstated. So one real problem is when the markets encourage you to what, pay attention to your private costs, but then dump some of your social costs on other people, like pollution. But there are ways to curb that, and especially important are property rights, right? And so a classic photo, I, I will use this in class, is a view from the sky very high up of the island of Hispaniola down in the Caribbean, with Haiti on one end and the Dominican Republic on the other end. And you can just see the border from the sky because it's a way greener on 
one side and way browner on the other because the property rights are more secure in the Dominican Republic. Not a perfect place, but you know people own land and people can't just come on and steal their trees and whatever. But on the Haitian side, it's been such a cronious, you know, corrupt society for so long that people know that the guys in the government or the friends come in and like just take my stuff whenever they want. And so I guess I'll just cut my trees down before they get here, or maybe they cut them down before I get to it. And the place is denuded, and there's erosion and runoff and all that kind of stuff. And the people live in a, one of the, basically the lowest standard of living in the Western Hemisphere in one of the countries. On the other side of the, the border, it's you know a, a much, much higher standard of living, right? And property rights are the key. You need to have a government with well, the checks and balances so there's an independent judiciary so that when the guy in charge wants to come in and just steal my stuff, the courts will stop them from doing it, right? You need to have secure property rights. If you can create those property rights to all sorts of things that are getting abused, you can solve those problems, like a property right to fish, uh, for example, so we don't do the overfishing. What property rights allow you to do is husband your resources, improve, add to their value, and especially think long-term. You know, I'm not going to cut these trees down now because you know, 10, 20, 30 years later, they're going to be way more valuable. That really allows. And that's one thing that the left totally gets wrong, I think. Hey, folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings help us get the word out. And now let's get back to the show. They think that you know, the market system is all about just <clears throat> looting the earth and using all these resources up and, and whatever. No, 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 no. It really gets people to think long term and to husband their resources. And so what a market system can do also is make people so wealthy, it has made us so wealthy, that now we can afford luxuries we never could before. And one of the key luxuries is a clean, beautiful environment. And we can, we're now rich enough that we're willing to pay for cleaner air now. We're willing to pay for more expensive fuels instead of cheap, dirty coal so much. You know, we'd rather have natural gas because you know, it's, it's cleaner, that kind of thing. And so – uh, the market generates this wealth that allows it allows us to be more charitable. You know, we've got a lot more wealth that we can share with the truly needy if they can't help themselves. Uh, it in incentivizes us to be virtuous and to serve each other. Imagine you're just an out and out jerk, right? How well are you going to do in life and business if if you treat everybody the way a jerk somebody a jerk treats people? Right. No, you got to act nice. You gotta, at least have to play nice and pretend to be nice, and then maybe it rubs off and you actually turn into a nice person. But you're not going to get very far in any line of business by just being a, an absolute jerk at everybody. The market incentivizes you to be more virtuous, to serve people in that way, because it actually pays, right? You know, you know, I could continue, you know, and some of those rebutting some of the, the charges from the left, especially about how, you know, workers get exploited only if they have no options. But what the market tends to do is give you options, more and more places that you can work for, especially if you're rich, you know, the economy gets richer and richer and you can afford a car and that kind of thing, you know? And so if you look at it, the absolute amount of inequality around the world has actually gone down noticeably in the last few decades, mainly because the poorest of the countries are getting pulled up uh, as they've turned to market solutions and, and away from out-and-out -out socialism. Of course, China's, China is the poster child for that, but it's been happening in countries all over the world. You know, you said something a little bit earlier, a few minutes ago. Um, in, in a lot of that, that the market has done all of this growth without coercion. And I can hear several of my leftist friends say, 
But really, because the only, you know, coercion can come in more than the form of government coercion or state coercion, and that it uh-huh. could come in uh, in the form of, you know, a wealthy landowner uh, not not being mm. a very good person and therefore is able to mm-hmm. kind of be coercive to either those around him or those who want his resources or there's enough interaction there there no but everybody would look at that left right and libertarian and say yeah. well that's a bad situation and yet it's still yeah. quote unquote voluntary on the parts of everybody but there's not sort of an equal sense of voluntary does that make sense mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so let me uh answer in a couple ways to that you know in some ways when you're really really poor the poverty itself can be thought of as a coercion. I just have no other option. I mean, think of the poorest people in ancient times, whatever. They were starving. I mean, it's not people in the, this country really much starving, but um, you'd have to sell your kids into slavery, right? But we live in such a rich world now that people just don't face that kind of poverty coercion like they did in, in you know centuries ago, millennia ago. But I think the other point is that there are some things that we'd like money to be able to buy and other things that it should never be able to buy. And so take that very wealthy person who's the landowner. Um, you know, we do have distinct property rights in this country. And so, you know, uh, maybe the person in another country is like squatting on their land and they they kick them off or, or something like that. Um, you know, where do you draw the line as to is, is that an abuse of, of power? In, in, our kind of, in our country, like the United States, the main abuse of power I think you see with the wealth is people trying to use that wealth so that they can get away with like immoral things, get away with things, right? Um, two people broke the law, drunk driving or something, right? The wealthy guy hires a really good lawyer, whatever, gets off scot-free. The regular guy, no, he's in trouble and loses his license and that kind of thing. We don't want that kind of thing to happen, obviously, at all. And so, you know, we do need to have safeguards in our society that your money can't buy certain privileges that are just off bounds. But I think everybody would agree with that right, left, and center, right? Libertarians and conservatives will often, and, and I do this a lot, and I think there's a tremendous value in it. And in fact, I think it's one of the kind of the right perspective, if you will, uh, to compare our situation as a society as a whole and where the world has gone economically to 100 or 200 years ago and see the hockey stick graph and say, look at where we are. And you people on the left are so worried about inequality. And, you know, 50 years ago, most people who were poor didn't even have air conditioning or 30 percent of them, um, Mm -hmm. only 30 percent of them had refrigerators. Like there's these like, the statistics really show progress on all fronts, yeah. and, and especially for the poor. And let, let's just say the the Western poor, not just like the poor and the destitute mm-hmm. places. Yeah. But I, I often wonder, and and maybe maybe that's totally fine. That's that's where it is. Is we can we compare those and say, look, listen, you guys are just you know ungrateful to what the market has 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 given us. But can the baseline change? I mean, is there a point at which we can all say? Okay, so now we have things like air conditioning and microwaves uh-huh. and all that, and we say that "quote unquote" basic needs aren't just uh-huh. we're not selling our kids or we're uh-huh. growing our own food. Like that, the basic need, like at some point, it and it's probably it's probably already happened. 
it would be very hard to justify a cell phone of some kind or a telephone as a basic need. And now I'm pretty sure everybody would say, well, you need to be able to be contacted. I mean, you can't work if you don't have a phone <laughs> or, you know, like the, there are things. And, and I think, you know, most of us, we, yeah. it's like everybody who got their first smartphone, how did I live without this? But we could go, we could live without it if we wanted to, but there, there may be a point or maybe it's, we've crossed it where having a basic mobile phone, if you will, has become a basic necessity. And that sounds like very excessive to anybody, you know, who, who <laughs> looks at this from, you know, typically libertarian or conservative perspective. It's like, are you, are you kidding me? Mobile phone is now a basic right. But I, I can see somebody making that argument and saying, well, you know, if they would be far less poor if they had a cell phone. I mean, can the baseline change? That's the basic question here. Yeah. So, uh, yes, uh, the goalposts are always moved, right? Further and further and further downfield. And so I think it's important to distinguish between absolute poverty and have a standard of absolute poverty and then relative poverty, right? And so the World Bank is good at coming up with these statistics on absolute poverty. You know, how many U.S. dollars adjusting for inflation, you know? Uh, people in different countries are, are earning, and you can see people rising above out of the absolute poverty. Uh, but that doesn't answer the question of the relative poverty. And well, people care about themselves in comparison to everybody else. It's just a fact of life. And if at worst it's it's out and out envy, uh, but you know it, it's got better aspects to it as well, uh, because it, it can be a very uplifting thing. You know, you don't want to be a bomb or whatever in comparison to other people. And so you actually get your life together because you want to be respected. But uh, you're right uh, that what the common person considers to be an acceptable standard of living has just risen and risen and risen over time. Um, Adam Smith talks about this, you know, back then, 200 and whatever years ago, uh, you know, no respectable guy in England would be dressing the way that somebody does down in a poor country, you know, down in Africa. You have, if you don't have acceptable looking clothing, ah, that's, you know, you're considered to be almost an outcast. Uh, and sort of what do you need to have to be an outcast uh, just rises and rises and rises over time. And so that's really a sign of the success of the system, but it's a criticism that's going to be infinite forever, right? Eternal, yeah, right. I guess is the right word, uh, especially from the left. Uh, saying, no, these people are, you know, still left behind, still left behind. It reminds me of of kind of whenever I go to church and I hear a good good homily, what's God asking of you? One thing, more. I mean, you're a good person. You're trying hard. Okay, you're finally coming to church. That's good. You're praying. I like that. Uh, you're not acting like that. Just more. Just Keep doing more. <laughs> Raise yourself. In fact, that's what a good wife does too. At least my good wife does. What does she want of me? More. You know? <laughs> just, just keep being a better and better husband. Right? And so we expect that. The best of us expect that. And I guess it's hard not to have the left uh, also keep reminding us, you know, you know these people, we nobody should be left behind. Right? And the big question then becomes like, how do we make sure nobody's left behind? Is redistribution the only way to do that? Or is it counterproductive at some point, as we know it is counterproductive? And so that, you know, that's really the conversation I and the other authors in this book are getting into. What's the best way to make sure that nobody gets left behind? 
And the market's got a pretty good track record of doing that, not perfect. And we got to, and some of the people, you know, authors, will talk about state interventions that, you know, end up completely backfiring in this this process uh, and sort of handicap people who are, who are, are going to be left behind and only make it more inevitable that they get left behind. <clears throat> you know, things like, uh, from a libertarian perspective, uh, the war the war on drugs, which criminalizes things and, and kind of and makes the employability of, of people uh, far worse than it would have been. Or you know the way we set up our school system, you know this we run it in a socialistic manner. Um, we give most of the power to the people who are on the supply side and don't give any power to the people on the demand side. You know, right? So yeah, system of school vouchers or something could really be an immensely uplifting and you know poverty alleviating kind of program and so yeah there's there's a lot of ways that maybe these problems could be solved other than the the sheer just throw some more money at that no throw even more it's not working throw more money at it yeah right approach that you see so often right well the irony is that that in a way the market you know capitalism we would say actually solves these problems with less money like yeah yeah <laughs> you know i love the discussion of school choice, right? Yeah. You see these economists and they're like, okay, you look at the school choice places, maybe it's a charter school, maybe it's a voucher, whatever. They're just not delivering, well, maybe a little bit more or maybe just the same as as the regular public schools, say so many of these studies. They're delivering just a little bit more educational outcome or the the parents are happier, but but time out. They're doing that with half the money. Did you notice that part? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I had I pointed this out to somebody, oh gosh, this is probably a decade ago, and their response to me was, Yeah, well those schools get grants and so the twenty five percent of the cost of the public school isn't really accurate because the school gets grants and the grant or, or don you know, like big big funding from donors and that goes to, you know, the the, the math is still wrong. I'm like, Yeah, but twenty five percent, they're not making up the whole other seventy five percent. Like no, not in, not even close. <laughs> It's like there's always a reason why the results of those studies are <laughs> are are uh, you know you can always cast doubt on everything. I mean it's just it's kind of a, a thing to do. Easy to muddy the water, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It's easy to muddy the water. It's easy to 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 be you know to compare that. Um, so your, the book's been out for a little while. Uh, has do you know if Pope Francis has come across it or read it? Well, that that's interesting. I I you know I don't know, and I mean. This is an immensely busy man, and so I'd be very surprised. But, you know, there's a lot of endorsements of the book, including some fairly high up in, in the Catholic hierarchy, including uh, Cardinal Schoenburn, Schoenburn from over in Austria, who is a cardinal, right? Uh, and is, I forget what the, you know, the position in, in the church is, but fairly high up. And so the Pope has this... Uh, Set of prayer intentions. Popes have done this for eons. And let me just read you one. There we go. And so in August, now where is it? Ah, there we go. In April, the Pope had this prayer intention. It was for those who have responsibility in economic matters that economists may have the courage to reject any economy of exclusion and know how to open new paths. 
And I thought to myself, I don't know, maybe the Pope, the Pope heard about our book or whatever, <laughs> and he's responding to economists and wanting to engage in a dialogue with us. Uh, of course, with his, his own way of framing it, they will have the courage to reject any economy of exclusion. And I think what we've been talking about here is an economy of inclusion. And I think he's right about figuring out how to open new paths that will make you know, life better off for everybody now and in, into eternity, right? Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it would be kind of, kind of cool to hear that if, if I were in your <laughs> shoes, uh, that the Pope, Pope read right. my work. I mean, uh, the, the best we can do on, on, on us is like every now and then we will tag the Pope in uh, Twitter. And, uh, I don't even know if he, if he's, if he like Trump manages yeah, yeah, his own but... Twitter account, but <laughs> probably not. But, uh, yeah. So we, we've talked about a lot of different things. We did talk a little bit about charity versus the welfare state. And in one conversation I heard that you had uh, in, a, in a different interview, you talked about the whether or not the welfare state and charity are kind of one and the same. You know, I know the people on the left will say that, you know, mm-hmm. if we didn't have the welfare state, charity would not be enough. And I often will say, well, it doesn't have to because the market does a whole lot of the lifting. But um, is, is it is it good to say that the welfare state is a form of charity, even if it's not voluntary, or is that just kind of a misnomer? What what are some thoughts you have on the kind of society that has a welfare state versus you know one that has charity or both? I guess traditional Catholic social teaching has said that a you know well a of course going back to Jesus, charity is what it's all about, right? Um, in fact, you know. These three things, faith, hope, and love, but love, it was charity, right? Uh, so a broader term. Um, and so the church has always taught that you know, charity is a fundamental duty of every human being. And that's not just alms kind of charity, but being charitable to other people and caring about their own well-being. Okay? But then how do you institutionalize that? And I guess one of the big debates is when you institutionalize it by having a welfare state, how much of the other kind of voluntary charity does it crowd out? And uh, I think the evidence I've seen from economic historians who've looked into this, say, you know, spending during the Great Depression when the United States first started spending a lot of money on that, is the crowding out is, is definitely not one for one. And so there is like now more resources heading over toward the poor or whatever when this, the state gets involved in it. Okay. But how well is that money targeted? How well does it solve the problems becomes the other issue. Because when you come to the the government programs and it's an entitlement, right, by law, it becomes kind of an entitlement by, you know, the way you think about it. And you just treat it differently as an individual. Like society owes me this. Then is if it's private charity and you see an actual person and you just cannot feel like society owes you that when it's coming. And so it, it does subtly warp you as a recipient when you start to become ungrateful for that because society owes it to you. And that can, can, can ruin you. That can stain you in a way that, you know, well, the money's good and maybe you need it for your family and, and, and that kind of stuff. But if it ends up making you a worse person and not able to share in God's goodness, uh, that's a high price. That is a really high price. And so 
Yeah, and it really does. And so the best of charity is the charity where it's kind of a mutual giving. And so I live in a city where I don't meet very many panhandlers. Uh, but when I do, I always say to the person, you know, as, as I hand them a $5 bill or something, I say, can you tell me your name? Because I'd like to pray for you. And my name's Robert. Could you pray for me? And I think that personalizes. And I do pray for the person. And I sure hope they pray for me because I could use more. Hey, listeners, you could pray for me too. Yeah, I could use more people praying for me. We all could use more people praying for, for us. But that really personalizes it, I think. And I think that's, that's charity. That's, that's supporting each other. It's a lot more than just handing somebody a little bit of money handing them, you know, I care for you. Yeah, I think if we want to live in a caring society, we have to be the kind of people that is that uh-huh. befits that society rather rather than simply being well off enough to outsource uh-huh. all of the caring uh, and depersonalize it. Because, you know, that's certainly the case. One of my favorite charities is Food for the Poor. Do you know Food for the Poor? I don't. And so they operate mainly in the Caribbean. And it is, as it says... Food for the poor people. And we were talking about Haiti before, and uh, a lot of the money is into very poor countries like Haiti. And they allow you to kind of personalize, not, not just write a check out for a certain amount, but uh, to like buy a sewing machine for somebody. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that could like, help them economically. Buy a few goats for somebody, and then uh, like those goats, they can milk the goats, and right, this will help them economically. <laughs> Buy an out-and-out house for somebody. So I got a picture a few months ago of this house that I had bought for this this family with their picture in front of the house mm. and their names. And now, you know, I know their names and can pray for them. And I think my prayers are probably uh, as efficacious as my money is for them. And money goes really far in, in countries like Haiti. Sure, so. yeah. A simple cinder block house where, you know, we're talking $4,000 or something like that. So Yeah. Wow. Well, Robert, thank you again for being on our podcast and talking with us about some tremendously important issues for, for any Christian and anybody who thinks about, you know, caring for, for those who are on the margins. Uh, I think, I hope the discussion has been uh, really helpful for our listeners. I, I believe it will be. And thanks for being with us. I am very grateful that you had me on. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Music